yeah, I ran a few cell cameras last year for the first time and it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, uh, I, I got my dad logged into the account as well. And he was like, this is better than Netflix. <laughs> it's like gambling. You wake up every morning and you're like, oh, you got to no. check, check, check them yeah. off. Yeah. My wife wants yeah. to like divorce me every morning. She's like, why, are, why is your phone so bright? I'm like checking pictures. <laughs> And we're back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hunter Podcast. I'm Jared's drinking. It's his birthday. It's water. Yeah, it is my birthday. It's liquid IV, probably. It is. Um, great flavor. Yeah. Let's get it How'd you know that? I, it's cloudy. It's either that or urine. I, I wasn't real sure. <laughs> yes. No, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so tangy. Uh, 64, right? 65? Damn it, Colton. Uh-oh. What? Uh-oh. 60, 65. Jared's 29 today. Yeah, man. Still in the young group. Yep. Someday you'll hit 30. As I was told, my wife is like, uh, no matter how old, how old I get, I'll never be as old as she is. She turned 30 this year? Yep, in July. Whoa. I won't make a big deal about it. I feel like I should, though. I was just thinking the other... <laughs> I, I was just... Like a good big deal. Yeah. 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 That's, I'm not good at that kind of thing either, though. Yeah. I, pr- I probably should find some way to... What you want? We can talk about it on this podcast. I don't think she watches them, so... Yeah, that's probably a good call. Uh, yeah, I don't, well, I, some kind of like I don't know, surprise party or something. Yeah, she like those kind of things. Yeah, I feel like if I threw my wife a surprise party, she'd like death stare me from the corner. Yeah, but she would appreciate it, like yeah. uh, deep down. What if you uh, had a party at the Dairy Mart during work hours? Well, and they have to be that anyways. Yeah, it's July. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we'll figure it out. We got time. Yep. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube. Got a new addition to the pod here from our boy, Jeremy. Um, shout out to, to Jeremy. He gave us a challenge coin. Now he made us this badass uh, American Hunter podcast sign, which yeah. is now a staple in our studio. Yeah, very cool, man. So appreciate it, Jeremy. Um, think about you and your family and some of the difficult times you guys are going through right now. And um, But we appreciate you always listening and keeping it real with us, man. Um, so it is still, it's March 3rd, mm-hmm. your birthday. Mm-hmm. So we just dropped, uh, it would be Jeremy Eldridge from Hoyt, um, would have been the last podcast you're listening to. And uh, we're kind of sticking on the Western guys, I guess, with this podcast. Sure. So we've got Sam Soholt uh, on the podcast today. Um, for all you public land nuts. For all you public land nuts. We, and we had, um, first of all, we had some really good responses from, from Brian Burnham. Burnham's uh, podcast, which I kind of expected, we pull out the the Pennsylvania contingency, but um, which I kind of expected. We're kind of a big deal. We're kind of a big deal, <laughs> but no, I think it's interesting how many people want us to like talk to like their agency's executive director. Yeah, man. Good luck, but um, yeah. Well, you know what would be interesting is somebody asked us about uh, it's more of a challenge, I think, but to talk to somebody from uh, the Ohio DNR mm-hmm. regarding the crossbow regulations and stuff. And I actually know somebody over there that might be a good fit for that. That'd be good. Yeah, I know um, Mike Tonkovich, who's the deer program coordinator. Oh, um, that might be even a better he, fit. I don't know if he would be as good on like the reg side as much as like here's the stats. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and guys made some good points on that stuff. I mean, the the one guy said, yeah, you know, we've had it. And I didn't know that. I didn't know crossbows were legal in archery season for whatever he said, 20 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. In Ohio? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one buck state, like PA. I think the big factor is there's not nearly as many hunters in Ohio as there are in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Yeah. I mean, I granted, we're not by 
you are a biologist. <laughs> you are a biologist. I'm not a biologist, but Me? like my yeah, my my non biological perspective is just that there's generally speaking bigger tracts of land and fewer hunters in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do we know how many you know, how many hunters there are in Ohio, Colty? Less than PA, I can tell you that. Oh yeah, I would assume under five hundred thousand. Because mm-hmm. I think like even Missouri's at like five hundred thousand, Georgia's at five hundred thousand. I think Ohio's less than that. I think they may even be in the threes. Yeah, look, a, it, look that up for it, us, Colty. It is interesting to to get the perspective from from Brian. Like I, I definitely, first of all, I really appreciated him coming on. Like that was really cool, mm-hmm. um, kind of eye opening in some regards. It definitely seems like his position or the position of the PA Game Commission is more hunters is better. Um, 100%. Generally speaking. License funds, it does come into uh, conjunction with federal PR funds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, a, they're an opportunistic state. The goal is to have more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the crazy thing is, you, you know, coming away from that, we heard a lot about the, um, you know, the super agencies versus independent agency, which what's the game commission is. And we've heard some nightmare stories. Like just recently, I'm like, oh, I understand why that's a super agency, meaning the governor and legislation runs that agency. Talking about Utah with the Mm -hmm. trail cameras. Mm -hmm. And many others, you know, that even like Illinois and some of the stuff that those guys are going through right now with CWD and struggles and (laughs) uh, urban bow hunting and things, it's all political run, which is, you know, it's a very liberal state, so they're not going to probably act very nicely towards us hunters. Mm. Do you find that number? 310,000. Wow. 310,000 what? Hunters in Ohio. How, do How many are in uh, PA? 700. Yeah, so there you go. That's why. That's why you can do that. It's a less than half, yeah. Yeah. There's your answer. Mm-hmm. Whoever that guy was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, so I thought it, it'll be interesting as we get into this conversation with Sam today because obviously Sam... Sam Soholt. Sam Soholt. That's who's on the podcast today. I said it already. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't listening. Sorry. Jeez, that's your that's like your only job. Okay, so, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking job. of what I was going to say next. Yeah, yeah. You go. So you go. Hey, Sam Soholt is on the podcast today. Uh, that's right. I said that I said public <laughs> land. Sorry. Yeah. So anyways, we're going to get into that discussion because, uh, well, we were just even talking about it with North Dakota. Um but, you know, Sam and his brother have done a lot of stuff in looking at um, mainly more in the West, how some of these federal lands are um, checkerboard isolated, essentially. So, like, uh, you'll have, um, you know, sections, townships, squares, like that's how it's run out in the yeah, land properties. the corner hopping issue. Yeah. And you basically like, how do you get from this block to this block when th- there is it's impassable? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, and he's been fighting it, man. So, so is there a is there a stance? Obviously, we need to bring him in on this conversation. I don't know. But is there a stance? Is is there an authority saying you can or cannot cross these? You cannot cross you them. What you cannot cross them without touching a private land, which would be trespassing. That doesn't seem right. Yeah, it literally comes to a corner where, like. You physically cannot jump the corner. Seems like that totally defeats the purpose of those public lands. What What's the point of having that's a public what Sam's land talk if about you can't today, access it? Great question. Seems like a great point to just have not brought. Just just <laughs> just do it. Now, who's stopping you on the corner? Well, I think is because, that happening? I think it's because people are getting stopped now. People are getting for stopped. jumping those corners, or they're almost landlocked to where you can't even get to them. Like it exists. How do I get to it? Mm. And that that's been something that we've found, I think, even in like Kansas and and some of these other places, Illinois, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, that's a badass piece of public that I can hunt. 
it's literally landlock. Like how there's no right away. How, like, how do I get to it? Yeah. We saw that in Illinois a lot in those swamp areas where like, Oh, here's this piece of whatever national wildlife refuge that is huntable. How do you get to it? Cause it's all public or private around it. You can't, can't access it. Yeah. It happens. Hey, two quick things before we bring Sam. Yeah. This is just my, cause I haven't seen you. So I wanted to tell you, Oh hey. um, you just saw me two days ago. Well, yeah. But since then <laughs> I shot my bow today. Oh yeah. Just for real quick. Wow. Yeah. I said, it's been a month or, yeah. or more. So, uh, talking to Jeremy last yeah. week inspired me. It felt to, good. Oh, felt, yeah. felt great. Yeah. Uh, so did that. And mm-hmm. I also got a, a no, uh, I I went to ask permission. Uh, for just a just a rando somebody was like hey i said big buck on that hill i figured out who it was mm-hmm. pulled up hunt stand there and i i gotta know basically she was really really nice she uh, it was a nice no it was a nice no i'm i'm sure i'm not the first person to have approached her um her no was because of liability mm-hmm. whether that's actually the case or it's just kind of her go-to mm-hmm. line is everybody's probably got one um, and so I offered, I said, if, if I was willing to pay for uh, liability insurance, I said, it's pretty cheap. Is that something you'd be open to? Mm-hmm. She's like, no, just, you know, the liability. So I left it at that. Interesting. Uh, on that same mark, um, if you're listening to this and you haven't gone back and listened to it, our first I Bought a Farm episode uh, drops tonight, which is March 3rd. If you're listening to this, it's not March 3rd. Um, so it's already out. Uh, I also have a good bead on a guest to talk about uh, liability insurance for uh, farms you own. Um, so we're going to get him in on f- for an I-, I Bought a Farm podcast. I probably know who that is. Yep. So um, should be a good one on that side. So there'll be a second one dropping here in a couple weeks. But first one, March 3rd, mark your calendars. And yeah. it's, you're listening to this, not on March 3rd. Yeah, so sorry for any up. delay getting that out. We're, you know, Jeremy and I are just busy like everybody else. And well, we're we trying just, to get to it and it is important. But it, I think it's the consistency. We just wanted to make sure we were going to have enough consistency and time to be able to put those out frequently for you guys because we don't want to do something half-ass. So... So anyways, those are my two things. Great. For an update. So okay. without further ado. Happy birthday. Oh, Sam. Sam <laughs> there he is. Hey, Sam. What? What's up? How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, doing good. We appreciate you coming on the Hunter podcast today. Um, it, if Jared didn't remind you, it is his birthday. So this is kind of a special birthday gift is we have Sam Soho on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, Sam, so we talked, we were kind of pre-podcast getting into this a little bit, um, talking about kind of North Dakota and, and, you know, some of the drought and conditions that were out there for a while, you know, and I don't, I don't want to jump right into some of the conversations that we're looking to get into, but kind of just give everybody a little bit of background. Are you born and raised in North Dakota? I was actually born in South Dakota. Okay. Uh, yep. Born in South Dakota, grew up in Sioux Falls and then, uh, went to school at North Dakota state in Mm -hmm. Fargo Mm -hmm. and then moved away from North Dakota for almost nine years. Um, went to Iowa for a little bit for an internship and then went to Colorado for about a year and then went out to Montana and then, um, Got married. My wife took a job at the hospital back in Fargo, so I'm uh, I'm back in North Dakota as of uh, two and a half years ago. Very cool, man. That's yeah. awesome. It's uh well this time of year. I don't know. Is it getting better in uh, Fargo area or is it still? Nope. Yeah, it's still death outside. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was negative. It was negative five this morning. Uh yes, that's Uh-oh. crazy. Yes, yeah, which sucks for March. I it, I, mean, I usually count on March to be like kind of like the weather break. Yeah. You, 
you might still have like cold and gray and whatever, but typically, typically you don't have those negative temps, but it looks like even on the 10 day forecast, we got a couple nights next week that are going to be like 10 below. Oh boy. Um, Wow. Yeah. I don't want to rub it in yeah. your face, Sam, but I wore a t-shirt to the podcast <laughs> on, on, on yeah, Tuesday. I, I left my house I, in a t-shirt today. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm very jealous. Yeah. I was uh, just out on a trip in Montana and it was like, when I drove out there, I was driving through Eastern Montana and it was like almost 60 degrees and I just couldn't believe it was like such a shock to the system. It felt yeah. so good when I got out to like fill up with gas or whatever. So that's um, crazy. On yeah, a plus side, you can still ice fish. So yeah, if I did a lot of ice fishing, that would be great. But <laughs> I'm uh, I'm just ready for turkey season. I'm just yeah, there I'm, you go. I'm jacked for uh, a little bit warmer temps and uh, some time spent in the woods chasing gobblers. So do you got a you do you have like a map kind of planned out right now for where you're going to be heading when turkey not, breaks? Not really. Uh, I'll probably just go on a tag buying spree at some point, and then I'll just see where the wind blows me. So there you I know. Go. I'm going to head out to Montana. Um, Jason Matzinger throws a turkey camp every year. So I'm going to mm-hmm. go try to kill a bird out there. Um, I'm going to go do a hunt with the identical draw boys for their mentor hunt um, down in Nebraska. Very cool. Um, might chase one around in Minnesota. I guess we'll just kind of see where where all uh, I end up. Mm-hmm. For, forgive yeah. my ignorance, but in the beginning of the podcast here, I might as well get it out of the gates. Sam, I understand that you're well accredited and, and established in this industry. What, what is your gig? Are you like a full full time influencer? Like, do you also do you have a day job? Like, what what's your uh, what's kind of uh, your? I don't really what's your like stick? that word. <laughs> I, I feel like all right. I feel like I got I got going in this industry before influencers mm, were a thing. All right, uh, well, so, give me another word. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, that's probably the right word for social media, I guess, but content. Uh, guy? I would say I, yeah, just photographer, um, mm-hmm. public land advocate. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, basically I just shoot photos and raise money for conservation. Um, awesome. yeah, it's my full-time gig though is, uh, shooting for different brands within the hunting industry. Yep. Um, and I kind of like parlayed that into my own, like being able to hunt for myself a lot. Like early on, it started as I was following people around the woods, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people, people that were a lot more well-known than I was. Um, and I, as I kept working with more and more brands, I just kept trying to transition it into, I just wanted to be able to hunt, uh, my, do my own hunts and then document those and shoot photos along the way. So, I mean, I picked up a camera so I could spend more time in the woods um, I didn't really pick up a camera so I could spend more time following other people around in the woods. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> makes sense. Um, yeah. And then, uh, it kind of like transitioned into the, the conservation public land advocacy side of things. And my brother and I started, uh, public land teas as mm-hmm. a way to raise a bunch of money for, um, conservation and give back. And that's, I mean, between shooting photos and, and, uh, selling merch to raise money. It's a, it's a definitely over full-time gig for sure. I can imagine. So what, um, what kind of spurred you off on the public land conservation side? Cause like, you know, all, all of us who are really dedicated in this space, whether it's, you know, just cause we love hunting or we just love the outdoors, you know, we, we cover probably a variety of grounds. Were you solely like a public land hunter growing up or, or was there a moment in time where it's like, wow, like these things are just so valuable and, and, you know, we're, I won't say neglecting them, but we're just not paying the attention we should. Yeah, no, I grew up uh, hunting a mix, you know, uh, between waterfowl, upland, some deer hunting when I was younger. Um, it was a mix of public and private. And I think, you know, as, as a, you know, hunter, outdoorsman, sportsman, I think you go 
you eventually go in a circle, right? So when you're growing up, if you, if you're lucky enough to have a dad or an uncle or a brother who like gets you into it and like, kind of like teaches you the ways like, and, and kind of brings you up in that space. Um, you know, I think for a while you're the kind of the mentee and you're learning and you're, you're getting into everything and, and taking it all in. And then you kind of strike off on your own and figure out your own style and the way mm-hmm. you like to hunt and where you like to hunt and the things you like to do. And then eventually you're going to start to get other people into hunting, you know, and you're start, going to start to recruit people to, to want to like share that journey and, and help other people have those experiences. And then eventually you're going to want to protect those resources so that future generations can do the same thing that you've been doing and, and perpetuate this model of sustainable lifestyle and knowing where your food comes from and connecting with the land and the animal and, and each other and yourself. And, um, I think I just kind of, I, I think I jumped the gun a little bit on it. Uh, cause back in 2016, there was this massive, um, push for the federal government to transfer a lot of the lands to the states and they had kind of marketed it as this uh, state's rights issue and mm-hmm. allowing the states to have better access to the land and be able to make decisions about land that's local to them. And I am 100% for more states' rights. I am I'm, I'm very pro-states' rights uh, and, and less big government. But at the same time, when, you, when you're talking about 640 million acres of land, the long story short is those states can't afford to manage that land and if there's a one wildfire or one, you know, right. disaster, something happens where like you, you know, wipe out the state's bank account, they're going to have to s- sell that land to cover the costs of what they're, what they're taking care of. So, hmm. um, yeah, in 2016, it was, there was threat of being like basically losing the land, which I lived my entire life off of. And I felt like I needed to speak up and use my small voice to, uh, kind of raise awareness about it and get other people involved and educate people. And it kind of just struck off down that path and it, you know, it kind of blew up into its own thing. I never imagined that I'd be this far down this road. Um, you know, I was so fired up about it. I <clears throat> bought a school bus as a rolling billboard <laughs> uh, to, to raise awareness about public land issues. And, uh, that kind of took on a life of its own and spent, <laughs> it was the plan was to do that for a year and ended up spending two and a half years kind of living out of a bus most of the time and, uh, traveling around hunting, fishing and camping and, uh, talking about public land. So I think for me, it was kind of like not being forced into it, but like, you know, just circumstances, you know, at where I was in my journey, as far as a photographer and like in the industry, I was kind of looking for that next, like big challenge, next thing that I wanted to do and accomplish. And uh, the timing was right. I didn't, you know, not married, no kids, uh, all of those things and had a little extra cash burn a hole in my pocket. So why not buy a 37 foot school bus and, and start down that 100%. road? It's a, it's I have a, done the exact same thing. Yeah, I think. Sounds like a great, great idea. It's an interesting topic when you get into that, um, federal state thing, you know, take, take waterfowl and migratory birds, uh, you know, out of the, the wayside there, you know, from a wildlife level, it is state manage resources right and and um you know with the exception of those those migratory birds or threatened and endangered species you know if we think of most of our game animals that we're all hunting it's a state managed uh resource and so when you put those state managed resources on a federally owned piece of property of which then how that habitat is essentially managed is by federal dictation yeah i mean anyone can see that there could be a conflict um there potentially yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start looking at 
how the land is grazed, how it's used for oil extraction, because it's because federal land is multi-use mm -hmm. and like we need to we need to work together to have sustainable multi-use. So I'm I'm not against oil extraction if it's done in a certain way. I mean, I, I would imagine that oil companies feel the same way. Like we're not a you know, like we like to have gas and oil leases on these grounds, but we're certainly not trying to push out every, right. uh, you know, bird and animal like out of the way to make that happen. So it's this, yeah, it, it does get complicated though, because obviously the States are managing for opportunity, um, or quality depending on the unit. Um, and so, yeah, you, you kind of run into these struggles when you have, you know, the hunter hunters and sportsmen and women want one thing and people who are trying to make money want another thing. Um, it, uh, gets sticky. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I know that you and your brother have kind of really, um, I don't know if I want to say shed light or, or brought more attention to, um, some of the issues out, out West when you see this checkerboard, um, mm -hmm. effect happening. And Jared and I were kind of talking about it before we even got on the podcast with you. And you know, we've, uh, I won't say we've seen it just because the, the way that the property boundaries and stuff are in the Midwest and in Eastern part of the, the country are a little bit different, but there have definitely been situations where there's been perfectly acceptable hunting land um, that's landlocked, right? There, there's literally no way for us to get to it. And you're looking at the map and you're just thinking like, like, okay, it's open to the public for hunting. How do you get to it? Yeah. Explain it to us, Sam, like we're idiots because <laughs> we're not idiots necessarily. Well, well, we're, we're, we're naive to the, we're naive to the issue. We're from so, South, Southwestern PA here. And yeah. as we were talking before the port, the podcast, uh, like North and South Dakota is about as far West as, as we've made it. So I know some of the Western yeah. guys would be like, that's the East. But, <laughs> but. Yeah. So, uh, like people listening, imagine you're looking like you're looking out of a plane and you're looking down on this basically flat plane of land. I mean, there's obviously topography and everything down there, but if you're looking down at that, uh, imagine it having an overlay of a checkerboard on top of that land. And <clears throat> what happened a long time ago was when the railroad went through, uh, I believe it was, yeah. I mean, basically the federal government owned massive swaths of land mm -hmm. and they had um, kind of, they had basically given it to the railroad to build the railroad through these, these chunks. And I'm going to get this historically wrong. Cause I, <laughs> it's been a while. No, we'll act like it's right it sounds accurate. Yes, so yeah, yeah. You're on so far. <laughs> But basically after that was done, they sold, it was interesting. They sold back like half of the land, but they did it in checkerboard um, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so now you have like the BLM Bureau of land management owns basically all of this checkerboarded land. This is a lot of this like is in Wyoming, but you see it in a lot of other places mm -hmm. as well. So you have this checkerboarded land and the way the rule sits now is if the land on all sides of that checkerboard land uh, is privately owned by a ranch. You can't walk to the corner of one piece of public and just step over the corner onto the other piece of public without getting in trouble. Cause apparently that's somehow trespassing, even though you're not touching any private property at all. So it's this mm -hmm. strange, it's a very gray area. Um, and there was actually a case, uh, some hunters out of Missouri were hunting in um, Wyoming last year. And they were pretty clever about it. So they had seen this checkerboarded land and they were like, well, you know, we don't want to touch the fence because that technically could mm -hmm. be, you know, like you could possibly prove damages if, you know, say one of them's climbing over and you break a, yep. uh, you know, rung off the fence or whatever. And like, you, you know, knock that barbed wire down and you cause cattle to get out. Right. So they actually hauled in a ladder, like way, a two-sided ladder way into this corner 
and put it over from public to public. And then they just climbed over the ladder. Well, then I love that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that amazing? I I love what hunters will come up with the the ingenuity when it's like comes to access. Right. They're like, well, we know we, you know, like I'm not good enough to one, one hop, uh, of, you know, four foot fence Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, they climbed over the ladder anyway, they called, I think it was three or four times they had to call it like the landowner called the game warden out and the game warden came out and was like, there's nothing, I mean, there's no criminal anything here. There's no trespass. There's like, I mean, they literally like, we're good. Call them back out and like, no, like took a picture of it. Like talk to the guys, like, you know, like good. So, and then had to come back out. I believe it was the state's attorney basically like push for criminal trespass. And the guys got charged with criminal trespass. And so now there's this court case Hmm. and there's going to, there's, it's interesting. We donated, um, we donated $5,000 to help cover the legal fees of this case. There was a, a GoFundMe started by the Wyoming BHA chapter and we donated to help um, basically cover the fees because if, if that case is one, I mean, sure. it's, a, it's a state level right now, but it could potentially work in Hunter's favor to set precedent, you know, be able yep. to like down the road, we could have access to millions and millions of acres that are currently landlocked. Um, but the, Legislative session is going on right now. Millions and millions of acres that are currently landlocked. Yeah. So just federal, I think it was like 9.4 million acres or something like that of landlocked. Oh my word. That's insane. Yeah. So it's not working. And Sam, do you know what's really sad about that is like, is I don't know the situation uh, specifics necessarily, but dude, if there's, if you're going to the level of putting a, uh, yeah, like a ladder like that, and there's literally mm-hmm. no no physical touch. That that private landowner doesn't really have an issue with his fence being damaged. He's trying to protect the wildlife mm-hmm. and his right to it uh, because he's got I'm the border assuming, in private. I'm assuming he. Could That's the only reason he's he, going to have beef with that. He could potentially claim the air rights being violated above the land because sure. you're right. going to cut that corner. I'm sure that is the case. Yeah. And that is that is exactly what had happened after the fact. So mm. um, they're cl- they're claiming that basically. You like own the land and then all of the air yep. above it. Yep. Well, you do. So, yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, that is, is the case. It's a technicality in the in the way that it is. Is you don't have to you, that there's an invisible wall there that you'll break the plane. If you could get skinny yep. enough, you could sl- so slip a wedge right there. <laughs> but what you're having, what you're, what's happening is uh, you have large landowners who own large swaths of the private around these chunks of public, and then. And, and, and I'm, I'm all for outfitting. I'm all for people making a living in this industry, doing those things, but they're outfitting and they're able to run outfitting, uh, things on these public lands that right. we all pay for. Yep. So, you know, it'd be one thing if they were paying taxes on that property, like that they're, you but know, they're not, basically, <laughs> but they're not, they're, they're keeping away from the public. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's all these very weird laws and rules around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're not talking about tiny chunks of land that we're, we don't have access to. It's massive amounts. Cl- clarify, so, clarify that last point for me, Sam. You're saying that there's public lands that outfitters have access to that citizens don't? Yeah. So, so let's say, um, you know, there's a, you know, a, a large chunk or whatever, like of checkerboarded land. Well, if one, one or a couple landowners own all of those private chunks all the way around, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then as well as the private chunks in the middle, they'll start outfitting on that. And so they'll like, basically they're, they're doubling. Oh, one the of those of land. private landowners yeah. would have to be on the outfit because they have the access. Yeah. Right. 
or right. they allow it and charge a fee. I see. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So they're able to have these like basically giant private ranches that they only own half of. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So we pay for the rest of it and they're able to reap the benefits. And to a certain extent, there's some things that, that are okay with that. You know, they're able to pay lease, you know, grazing fees and that stuff for cattle. But when it comes to like hunting rights and wildlife management, and all that stuff, it just doesn't sit right with me. Certainly that we don't have access to land that we all own. Exactly. Well, it can't happen with private land. So how can it happen with, you know, how can they be okay with it happening with, with public land? You can't have, you can't own a piece of private land without being warranted mm-hmm. via an easement An easement. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's required mm-hmm. like an easement well, apartment, like, which is what how I can was, that not be the case with public land? That's what I was looking for when we were in Southern Illinois, we were in these swamps and it was national refuge down there, Sam. And <clears throat> we would see these, these public land chunks in the middle of private. And it's like, Oh, cool. Like we want to hunt that. There is no easement there. It is no vehicles allowed, no foot traffic. Like there, there's no way to get onto those properties. Now I'm sure us fish and wildlife could to go in and manage or do whatever they had to, but us as hunters, like if we would start walking into that, you know, whoever's private land we're on, they're going to bust us because it's not a dedicated easement. Um, right. Yeah. It's it's really weird because, and I think it probably, yeah, it, it's probably just one of those things that in the West that it's a miss around the easement as, aspect of it. Yeah. And I know there's, you know, there's agencies and groups that are trying to work together on that type of stuff. You know, Onyx Maps has a dedicated fund to help like basically pay for easements. You know, they're working with the TRCP, the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, in in conjunction to match funds and do some stuff like that. So they're, you know, they're working on opening like large swaths of this, you know, basically landlocked public land. Um, But it's just, it's going to take time and a lot of effort and money and legal fees like to make that happen, which is frustrating. Wow. Yeah, it seems crazy. I I never realized it was that big of an issue. And I think from... uh, you go back to this federal, the federal side of things and, and start to look at, you know, these people could, the federal government, if they wanted to, which apparently they don't, could easily go in and pay a private landowner for a small easement through their land to access this property. Mm-hmm. It, it's done every day on a real estate basis from a private level for nominal amounts of money, right? Yep. They just don't. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I, th- I think, I th- you know, I think part of that is like, you know, they just don't want people coming through their property. Yeah. So, well, yep. so what do you think? Why do you think that is, Sam? Like, what do you, you know, if it was that easy, if the federal government could say, hey, we need an easement, we'll pay for it. Why aren't they? Why won't they? I think it's, they just don't want to, sp- I think one, the federal government doesn't really want to spend the money because. Yeah, uh, what, what money, I guess, correct. first of all. Right. Ours. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. And then two, like, would you, like, if it's not, if it's not illegal to like keep people out, which if oh, you no. were a large landowner, would you care? Like, yeah, I like, wouldn't oh. want anybody to be on there. Right. What's the question? So, so if you're a large landowner, <laughs> would you be the one to say, I, like, I could be hated for my answer. No, it's, it's the right answer. You don't want people on that property, right? Sure. Of course not. So that's right. They're not going to make is. an effort to let people. Of course make not. It but, there. but if I'm being honest, like, and I always try to be honest, you know, I don't, I don't think that's right. You know, there shouldn't be, there should be public land. What's going on? Somebody out there. Oh, okay. Uh, you, you know, it doesn't seem right that we would, you know, or citizens would be paying for this this public land that we, we can't access. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just, 
But it kudos is. to the landowners who are taking advantage of it. I mean, I'm sure they are. The law is the law, you know. Well, and just I mean, like I'll commend, commend people hunting over bait or you know, and whatever. And especially from an outfitter side, we were talking to um, Jeremy Eldridge from Hoyt uh, on the last podcast. And um, do you know Jeremy by chance? You're a Matthews guy, aren't you? I, He's a prime no, guy. No, I'm a prime. Are you? Yeah. 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 Right on. We know those guys. Yeah, Matt Grayson, yeah. those guys real well. Yeah, it's a nice bill. I yeah. shot the rise for several years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I just I'm left-handed, so my my uh, I saw my that mind finally I showed up. Just showed up. Huh? I should I should have known that when you mentioned uh, Matzinger. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. must also know like Remy and uh, you know Remy Warren. Yep. Yep. And who's the other guy? Uh, Solo Hunter. Tim Burnett. Tim Burnett. Tim Burnett. Yeah. Great mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. Yep. All those guys. Anyways, the prime crew. Um. But yeah. so we were talking with Jeremy and and Utah just banned all trail cameras from July yeah. one to January thirty one. So if you're yep. an outfitter in some of these places, you now can't use trail cameras. You better try to monopolize the landscape as much as possible for success because it's going to just become increasingly harder. What do you think about that, Sam? In Utah, it, was that on all lands? Was that yes. all trail? All. See, I, I, don't, I don't know how. Including private? They're, including private. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they're able to do that on private. That's what I, I asked Jeremy <laughs> yeah. the same question. I was like, listen, I, like, I fully get it, but if it's up to me, I'm not going to let somebody, um, you know, uh, tell me that I can't put a trail camera on my own private property, right. basically. Yeah. It'd be crazy. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the only way I can see that being, pat, I mean, legal for the state is because it is a state managed, you know, game species. You were talking about, I know we were talking about the, the checkerboard stuff. Mm-hmm. We were getting into a specific well, issue. Well, no, we were getting into the, the outfitter business side of things, right? Uh-huh. So we're, we're talking about um, we're specifically Utah. Like how can Utah DNR tell a private landowner that they are not yeah. allowed to run a trail That's camera right. for hunting from July 1 to January 31? Yep. Like what gives them the so, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the, the only, the, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, maybe it was easier for them to do a blanket, you know, hundred percent. Right. Um, and I would imagine that the majority of the reason that they passed it in the first place is because game and fish officers or is a DNR. I don't know what it is in Utah. Yeah. It's DNR there. So the DNR, I'm assuming that they were just getting tired of responding to stolen trail camera complaints. Mm -hmm. Right. And, or, you know, like, hikers and bikers people like come into a water hole or something and yep. like there being like 15 trail cameras like you know you feel like you're almost getting spied on so yep. i'm not i'm not in favor of it but i can understand the passage on public lands mm-hmm. because the 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 dnr needs to be out there managing wildlife not managing people agree like, that's part of their job is managing people but most of their job is to make sure the that harder the part are- is managing people <laughs> yeah the, absolutely yeah but like you know we're our hunting licenses that the fees for tags and licenses goes towards managing the habitat and the wildlife. So I would imagine I can just see it. Like I would be so frustrated as a game and fish officer, like, Oh man, like one more phone call about somebody's trail camera that got stolen. And I got to go investigate this because I'm, you know, like I'm basically a police officer for these, this yep. property. Um, but the, the private <laughs> land thing, I'm, I'm super curious how they were able to do that. And, and maybe, you know, maybe in my mind, it's like, maybe it should have been like, no, you can use trail cameras on private land, but I, I don't, maybe you can't like enter your animal into the book or something. I, mm. I don't know what the, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't know what the right answer is, but it, it's, cra- it's, it's a crazy because 
again, it, in we talk about that we talked about this the other day in that the state can tell me that I can or cannot harvest a deer on my property based on state regulations, right? At, right. at certain times of the year or the amount yep. of animals that I can I get that, right? Because those deer, those elk, you know, are not my property. They're the property of the people. I get right. that. But in terms of placing a physical piece of property that I own on another physical piece of property that I own, say a, a tree or a, a stake in the ground or whatever, I mean, now you're just, starting, you're starting, now state is starting to talk a little bit like big government, which right. is, I just don't that's know how a they fine ever, line. Like, w- will they ever attempt to prosecute somebody for having a trail? How are you going to enforce it? Yeah. It, well, it, because, and it sounded too like there was going to be some recourse is not the right word. Like there were modifications. some modifications. They were going to yeah. go back and, and see how this let's, is literally going to be applied. Let's in throw the hardcore blanket over yeah. and then maybe we end up having to pull it back a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, in in transparency, they don't have enough law enforcement to regulate those anyways. Who's going to go around private property to private property and check to see if you have cameras running? They're not. Yeah. No, they're not. Well, in, ter- in terms of arguments like for getting rid of the trail cam, Sam, it was Jeremy that was telling us it was the first time I had heard of like 12, 15 trail cameras on a water hole. You know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. For, it's hard for us to imagine, you know, water is such a commodity out there. Um, you know, and everybody knows it, um, in regards to the wildlife. So they, you know, they pile trail cameras in there and if it's a regular trail camera, not a cell camera, you know, they've got to be going in there once every two weeks, every two months at the very least. And so the, the concern becomes, when does the wildlife get to use that resource? You know, so it's actually creating stress in addition to, like you said, you know, calls to the game commission with issues of theft and Mm -hmm. that's happening as well. Yeah. And I get that. In fact, Missouri did it when I, uh, I probably won't get my wife in trouble now, but when I, she worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation from 2011 to 2015 ish, I think 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when I, when we lived out there, all I hunted was uh, public land, uh, some, yeah. some army Corps land, but mostly state run, um, you know, public lands. And I, I use trail cameras. Well, Missouri is one of those states that if it's not in the book, right, it's illegal. If it's not in the law, it's illegal. Oh, sure. And okay. and in that, what was not in that book was uh, that you could place trail cameras on public land. It it did have stands, you know, and you had to have your conservation ID and all your number on it, but it didn't specify cameras. So technically, I was doing it illegally, and I got in trouble for it. I mean, dude, first of all, what a dumb approach. If it's not in the book, it's illegal. That's How it. does that make sense? Yeah. That's it. That's, that's literally saying, listen, we've considered absolutely everything. And therefore, if it's not in there, it's, it. not, it's not real. And eventually it went in the book as you cannot run trail cameras on public land in Missouri. <laughs> really? You know, and they, at that time, they quoted privacy issues. Basically okay. saying, well, if, if, you know, there's somebody walking up that trail and they don't want their picture taken, now you have their picture. And I get that. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. the law. <laughs> well, yeah, that, uh, the waterhole issue is the same reason Arizona banned it. Yep. Because there was, you know, same thing, 15 to 30 or whatever, you know, trail cameras on a waterhole. So, <laughs> and I, man, I, I would have a hard time wanting to hunt like that. I know person. that's so, it. Yeah. I would like, say if there's 30 cameras around a water hole, I'd probably need to find a different spot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unless well, it's like an was, exclusive draw of which like there's only a handful of you getting drawn every year or something. See, and, and that, that was the case in Arizona. You'd have, you know, a water hole on the Arizona strip, yep. uh, which is known for giant mule deer. And you'd have 
30 cameras on the water hole, but there might only be one guy that's actually drew that tag to hunt that like area. So yeah. you have all these people that are just like, just like getting pictures of big deer or shed hunting or whatever it may be. I and, get that. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. Sam, yeah. just t- tell us like, uh, I mean, you don't have to take a stance on it necessarily, but like we're trying, you know, we're trying to under- understand. And it's like, I, I think that like, just generally speaking, I, I tend to be in favor of things that make wildlife har- harder to kill because I yeah. respect them or appreciate them. I want to see them reach maturity. I want them to have, you know, li- you know, live to the fullest essentially. And so when I hear something like, well, trail cameras are banned at first, I'm like, oh, that sucks. You know, that it was nice to have those, but I'm also like, good. Cause I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to go scout, you know, even, yeah. even if it's out of state, it's like, you mm-hmm. know, I, the fact that it's making it harder for everybody else and consequently me, yeah. you know, and Jeremy, uh, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just curious yeah, how, and, how you feel. And I have, no, I am too. And I've, I've run it. I've hunted both ways, you know, where the, I bought a bunch of trail cameras, um, put them out for a couple of years and, um, you know, it was fun to get out. Like I basically, I'll just let them soak. Um, yep. and you know, I'd check them maybe once like right before season or like in the middle, you know, like every time I go hunt that spot, I would pull the camera in the card and then check them and see like what's in the area more like more taking inventory than like trying to like, you know, Oh, got this deer in daylight sure. and try to you know, yeah, patterned out. And, and I can honestly say like there, I don't, I think there's only been one deer that I've killed where like I knew he was in the area before I hunted it. Like I had checked the camera be like, Oh, that's a good deer, you know? And then ended up killing him once. I think other than that, most of the time, like the deer that I have, like coming past camera or whatever, like middle of the rut, something else completely different shows up. And I end up shooting that deer. And I'm like, well, that was kind of a waste of like even walking in here with a, with a camera. But, um, no, so I, I, I understand, uh, like, you know, wanting to make it harder. I also think trail cameras can remove some of the mystery, like in the fun hundred oh, percent of dude. hunting most because, of it a hundred percent yeah and if you know when you're going like there's just nothing better some than of the mystery a- dude sam th- th- consider before trail cameras you know this is maybe <laughs> before our day and age my uncle talks about them having a trip wire of like when a deer would cross the trail like it would pull the thing and Take it would say at this time yeah no no picture it would just say hey oh. something pulled the trip cord at this time yeah. they had no idea other yeah, than in pennsylvania you can spotlight at night and mm-hmm. you can you know you can get a, an eye on them that way but but dude, before the trail camera, like we had no idea what was mm. out there other than what came through like the check stations or which was the excitement, man. You woke up yeah. for for hunting or opening day or something, and and you sat in that stand. You know, everybody would lie if they thought like like your dreams are just of that giant buck coming through, and and you know, nine point nine times out of ten, it didn't happen. But a deer comes through that. You didn't know. Yeah, dude, tra- trail cameras have completely changed the industry, in my opinion. Well, <laughs> you even talk about the fact that you don't, when you're hunting and you see a deer, you don't think of that deer is at this age. You think of that deer is this deer. Mm-hmm. You know that. 100%. Deer. Well, and dude, beyond that, I think cell cameras completely changed the industry again. Like it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a different beast altogether. Mm-hmm. Like tra- yep. trail cameras gave us the ability, like you said, to, it, it took the mystery out of it. It's like, and in a in a good way, it's like cool. I can now I can identify these deer. I have more time to study them. You know, I can observe mm-hmm. their habits at least. You know, from pictures, um, I, I can be more effective at conservation at least in what animal I, w- I want to harvest because I can recognize the animal. All that's mm-hmm. a, a good thing, you know. And but the flip side is, you know, it, t- it takes the mystery out of it. There's there's less surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so better or worse. And then when you get to cell cameras, it's literally to the point. So contrast what you were saying there, Sam. 
I haven't killed a buck in the past three to five years that I didn't have regular pictures of on on a cell camera. I mean, it's yeah. those things kill deer, and I will I'll stick by that stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I ran a few cell cameras last year for the first time, and it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, uh, I, I got my dad logged into the account as well. And he was like, this is better than Netflix. <laughs> it's like gambling. You wake up every morning yeah. and you're like, oh, you gotta no. check, check, check them yeah. off. Yeah. My wife yeah. wants to like divorce me every morning. She's like, why are, why is your phone so bright? I'm like checking pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I had a ton of fun with it, but I, you know, I still think that the most fun that I have in, in what I do a lot in, especially in whitetail hunting is I am like hang and hunt in new areas every single morning, every single evening. Like I, I hardly ever hunt the same place twice for an entire year. Um, because I, I am a firm believer that your best chance of killing an animal is your first time in hundred percent as a man. Yeah. And so, you know, even though I had these cell cameras out, you know, and I was, I mostly had them in areas that I was putting my dad, uncle, uh, brother-in-law, you know, in, in places that like, are a little bit easier to hunt, you know, and hunt differently than the way I hunt. Um, I, I barely use them to my own benefit. Like I, yeah. I had a good time looking at them and like being like, Oh, there's a, there's a good deer in this area. Like maybe I can figure out like what pinch point, you know, he might be on. Um, but mm-hmm. I also, there was, you know, we had one camera that had picked up a really good deer and, uh, I was like, man, I'd like, I want to try to kill that deer. And so I spent, you know, an unusual amount of time hunting that area uh, for me, you know, typically like I would just like go hunt it, hunt it, maybe, you know, hunt one spot, you know, in the morning, you know, maybe if the wind's right, I'll hunt another spot, like a couple days later, mm-hmm. uh, in a similar area and just see what's going on there, maybe kill a deer. And if not, like I'm out, I'm on to the, to the next spot. But because I knew that there was this like, you know, better, like, you know, that next age class of buck in that area. What, what are we talking here, Sam? Like, 150, 160, Booner. There's a whitetail you're talking about, I assume. Whitetail. Yeah, I would say probably 160s somewhere. Okay. I mean, just a just a real solid, but like age class wise, I mean, he was old. Just yeah. an old, like gnarly mm-hmm. deer. It's awesome. So, um, and so I I hunted that spot. I kind of like changed my own tactic and started hunting that spot more, which just I don't know, like threw off my rhythm. Like I always like, you know, like I'll start a whole trip. Like I'll have pins on the map for Onyx and be like, all right, day one, you know, depending, obviously all everything's wind dependent, but like mm-hmm. day morning one, I'm here. Evening one, I'm here. Morning two, I'm here. Evening two, I'm here. Unless, you know, I spot some absolutely cranker where I'm going to like spend yeah. a little bit more time. Are you using a standard saddle? Uh, yes. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use either. Yeah. Um, I, tend to favor stands still over a saddle as do we Um, yeah and that's mostly because um i think it's mostly because i have my system down so well for stand hunting yeah and on top of that i hunt in cold weather a lot and i i find that like the the way the bulky clothing yeah with a saddle for me doesn't seem to work as well as being able to have my harness just pass through all of my layers up to my you know, mm-hmm. safe line. So that's just, no, it makes story. sense, man. I mean, we, we definitely ha- have learned at least in the last six months of having some of these podcasts with Eberhart and, and Allie and these people that, that we live well, and die by saddles. We, we went out yeah. and bought some. So, yeah. So we're, we're currently tree stand guys, but we're yeah open to the idea. Open to the idea. Yeah, we, we went out and bought some. And- the, the hard thing is, is that, you know, we can hang 
uh, a tree stand, a hang on as fast as I can a saddle. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you exactly. on that, Sam. I've gotten so good at it over the years. Like, I get the I, weight. I can hang a tree stand. For sure. I can't do much, but, but like, hang a tree stand. I, I don't really even understand the weight aspect of it. Irrelevant. Uh, Irrelevant. Because by the time you have, I mean, yes, it is slightly lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the but, bulk. That That's what yeah. it is. Right. And I just, uh, by, by the time you have, I mean, and, and I'm a, a, you know, I use tethered tree saddles, like love them, yep. you know, for if I'm going into a new area that I've never hunted before, a mm-hmm. saddle is an awesome option. More flexible. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to hunt in the ground until <laughs> yep. I figure out what I'm doing. Yep. Um, and then you're not carrying a stand around, but if I'm going back into somewhere that I kind of have a good idea of like what the trees look like, yep. um, you know, or at least the type of trees where I know, like, regardless of I'm going to be able to get a tree stand into it, like mm-hmm. I'm like, and then I'm going to sit there most of the day, like I'm taking a tree stand. Yeah. Um, so I think a saddle is an awesome tool. I also, uh, you know, for people that have like my dad's terrified of heights, uh, but put him in a tree saddle being able to face the tree mm-hmm. and basically, you know, almost always feel like you have something to grab onto rather than being facing away from the tree mm-hmm. for him. It's like a security thing. He's like, Oh, I, he's like, I feel way better in a tree saddle than I do in a stand. Like, mm. he's like, I don't know what that is. It's just in my head. But, um, but yeah, I think saddles are an awesome tool. Um, and I think it's something that people should have the ability to like have it in their kit and use it. Um, especially if they're hunting new areas, but I'm not a, like a, it, for me, it hasn't been like a total game changer. Yeah. I mean, I could see the, there, there's definitely been times I'm in an area and I'd love to hang a, a, a set, but like every tree screwed up and it's like, well, you know, or it's too small or it's too thick or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't, I think mine is more of the, how comfortable I feel shooting out of a lock on versus a saddle. Mm-hmm. I just, yep. I get how people are doing it, you know, and I've practiced like that. I'm just, it's not second nature. I mean, I, I know the motions in my, on my platform to shoot. Right. I yep. don't know the motions of facing the tree and it's, having to like go up and around. It's, and like, it's unfamiliar. Yeah. We've been hunting yeah. out of tree stands for, I mean, you 20 some years. Yes. You know, yeah. and so for us to try to jump into a saddle, we're not, you know, it definitely could be just as comfortable, sure. but it's just unfamiliar to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say that's definitely true. I probably haven't practice nearly as much out of a, a saddle as I need to No, um, yeah. No. until you run into a situation where you're either truly sold on it or you've got, you're trying to kill a deer where all the trees are whatever, four inches in diameter, and you're not going to be able to use a lock on, on it, then yeah. I mean, why force yourself to be like, yeah, I have to use this thing. Right. There's good situations right. for it. And, and I think that they are really handy. I'm sure we'll use them this year. Yeah. Um, but that's, and, you know, I'm, I'm probably just an idiot. But I have walked into stuff with a saddle and been like, oh, that would have been a great tree for a tree stand. But like I'm left handed and I I have this saddle like I can't hunt out of that tree. Yeah. And and maybe it's just like my, you know, me being naive as a saddle hunter. But like I have looked at stuff like, yeah, I just wish I had a lock. on. No, man, it's me, too, because I did it. um, I've got a place up on the mountain that I hunt a lot and I I constantly would leave my sticks in the tree, even though, and they're like, well, aren't you going to just be mobile? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to crawl up and I'll like hook in and I'll, I've got my saddle, but that's my mindset of being uh, a tree stand guys. I'll just leave my sticks up there and pull my stand and then use it in another spot and come back and just have the sticks already set. Right. Since you mentioned it, that that is one advantage to like, if you're hunting a property that other guys are also hunting, if you hunt with a saddle and the other guys are tree stand hunters, they may not have that option. Yeah. You know, so you'd be like, oh, there's no tree stand in it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you better go over there. there go. Yeah. I, dude, I will say, <clears throat> as a tree stand guy, first and foremost, the times that I've thought, uh, look, or in hindsight, man, it would be nice to have a saddle is not so much hanging because I've, I've really, I've never had a giant issue. I can get mm-hmm. them into most trees. I think, um, it's, it's going in and coming out. If I, yeah. you know, I think about peak of the rut, especially you, you know, you know, you're going in for an all day set. My bag is packed, yep. has clothes rolled up on top of it, has antlers on the top of it. Oh yeah. We've gone into public land in Kansas that I'm kayaking down into. So I've got a literally a tree stand on the front of it. Uh, my packed bag on the back of it with my bow clipped to the back of it, you know, throw a decoy on top of that. And I'm at the bottom of the river there. Like you just can't do it. It's a lot of stuff. You're right. I think it is the bulk. So the weight issue is like a kind of irrelevant for me. Like I work out, I'll be fine. Yeah. You know, but in terms of bulk, yeah, the tree stand can be, it's bigger. It's just bigger than a saddle for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I I think the only place I've ever Kansas would have been the one place that I could have said there've been more uses for a saddle than uh, a lock on, just in terms of some of those hedgerows and mm-hmm. stuff where, you know, it literally is slim pickings on the tree, but in most cases, you know, but you you, you also know like it's that tree, like that's the one I need to be in, you know, and you got to figure out a way to get up in there. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> now I will say, if you're gonna hang two people out of a tree. Yeah, like having having whatever the main shooter in a tree stand, and then being able to just like climb mm-hmm. up, yeah, and then step onto the stand and hang your saddle platform and like hang off the back if you're shooting photos or filming, mm-hmm. like that's that's money. Um, and then you know, I'd be like, oh, if anything comes in behind us, like I can cover that avenue. Yeah, but like you know, so if you're if you're hunting with a partner, like it's a little different story. But solo stuff, I'm still I'm torn. Are Are you doing that quite a bit, Sam? Are you guys filming hunts? Are you doing more hunting or more filming? Uh, we're trying to, to film more of it. <laughs> we, we've done a poor hard, job of it? it so far, but, yeah, uh, dude. yeah, mostly, I mean, part, mostly it's on me. Like I like shooting photos more than I like filming. So mm-hmm. I have a hard time like getting into that mindset. Like, okay, I'm putting together a hunt. Yeah. Like, for film. S- um, since you mentioned yeah. it, Sam, we had a question from, uh, I, I just get one of our subscribers, uh, asking if, if you've ever had an opportunity, like, uh, where you should have taken a shot like with your, with your bow, but you took it with a camera instead of you ever missed out on an opportunity because you're too busy with a camera? No. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I've said this quite a bit in the past. Like I picked up a camera so I could hunt more. Um, and I, I do like the art of photography and like basically, you know, trying to tell a story with an image, but man, I am a hunter first hundred percent mm-hmm. of the time. So if like, if it's getting into the thick of it and it's like a choice, like if I'm picking between a bow or a gun and my camera and I have the tag in my pocket 100% of the time I will use the weapon the, mm-hmm. over the camera. Yeah. Good so, for you, man. That's the right choice. I think what's interesting about that, Sam is, <clears throat> and I saw that you uh, kind of re-brought up the, the Joe Rogan cover for, was it Peterson's recently? Yep. <clears throat> I think what's interesting there is like um, you being the photographer, but also like a dedicated hunter puts you in a lot better position for those really cool shots um, because you understand how to move. You understand what to look for, you know, mm-hmm. and it's no knock to other photographers, but I've seen a lot of guys who just aren't familiar with hunting or they're, they're not that in tune with it and they struggle in those settings um, because they're not they don't know how to move or they're not sure when that shot's going to happen. They don't even know how to anticipate it. Meanwhile, like you're kind of waiting there as a hunter, like, Hey man, like it's going to happen like soon. Like you got to be ready. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's a weird dynamic to have when you're out there with someone else. 
for sure. And I, I think I got lucky, you know, grew up hunting, but, you know, getting into the photo side of things and then being able to go on these hunts with incredible hunters, like way far and above like my skill level, like guys like Remy Warren, Adam Greentree, uh, you know, Rogan was a novice hunter when we went on that moose hunt, but like being with the guide, mm-hmm. uh, like all of these different people who like their skill level, like is so far and above and like being able to learn Jason Matzinger, you know, yeah. guys like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then them understanding that I knew how to hunt as well. So like, it was really fun to be able to get into these like rhythms with these guys and like, know that like, like there was never a question that I was going to be able to move in with them or not, you know? And like, just being out of sight, out of mind, and they can just do their thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to, I was able to learn how to hunt better (laughs) from those guys. Uh, and I was also able to get the shots that I needed to without screwing up their hunt. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, dude, it's, yeah. there's, there's so much value in, in the details. It popped into my head when you said that, have you ever seen that all state or like nationwide commercial? It's, it's, it's on right now. It's the, it's the bull rider mm-hmm. hunt thing. Yeah. I noticed the other day, I've seen that commercial a hundred times and the, the first time like shot of that guy, he like wraps his hand in the, the rope and then grabs onto the horn on like, a, it's like a Western oh, yeah. saddle. No, no. And then like later in the in the commercial, it just like cuts real quick. And then he's just holding on to the rope, like back behind it. And I'm not a bull rider, but I, I was like, man, I would imagine that that commercial pisses off a lot of bull riders. Yeah. They probably look it's at that and like, they're like, that's yeah. not right. You know, it's probably like uh, seeing a guy with, you know, a release and they're holding it like, down well, that's it. Yeah. I was going to say every time you see a movie and guys shooting a bow and he, you know, there's not even an anchor point. It's just like straight out here and I'm shooting and you're like, yeah, dude, it or the sights on the wrong side. Yeah. Of the right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't work that way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just that authentic, um, aspect of it, but it, it all comes down to whoever's capturing that stuff has to understand it, you know? And, and that's how those things are really gonna, um, you know, come together on that side. So sure. what's, um, all right. So you're married now. So do you still have the school bus? Uh, I do. I'm actually, uh, uh, I am currently warming up the engine block so I can Whoa. turn it on. Yeah. Uh, cause I, <laughs> I need to start it and get it, uh, completely cleaned out and ready to go. Cause I'm driving it to Omaha, Nebraska next week for pheasant fest. Does that so run be, on diesel or is it gas? It does. Oh yep. yeah. So what are you paying? Like five fifty a gallon right now? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked lately. I, I try not, I never, I never check when I pull into a gas station. Like that's, that's not wise. So do people, yeah. do people stop you when you pull into gas stations and stuff like that? I've had a lot of conversations at gas stations. Yeah. I bet. I've, yeah, I've given lots of tours, you know, like it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Like, especially when I was on the road all the time, like um, you know, every once in a while, there'd be somebody that like had seen the bus on social mm-hmm. and they'd flag me down or whatever. But most of the time it was just people like, what are you doing? Like, especially, you know, a lot of them, a lot of people thought it was like a government bus. Cause it says public, it's like kind of like green and tan <laughs> and then it says public land bus. And they just thought like I was a, whatever, a federal like game warden or something driving around a school bus. So, <laughs> um, no, I, I've had, yeah, I've got to talk to a lot of cool people along the way. That's awesome, man. So yeah, fe- I guess, so you said pheasant fest. Yep. So we'll, uh, we'll have the, both the bus and the van down there, um, in Omaha. And then, um, we're part of the public lands pavilion. So okay. we'll be selling all of our merchandise. We cool. actually have three brand new designs, um, dropping at the show. Then they'll, they'll hit the website, um, shortly after that. Uh, but yeah, so what we do is $5 from every item we've ever sold. We've donated back to conservation initiatives. And so at the show, it's no different. And at, pheasant fest two years ago uh right before covid 
we helped uh, fund a build a wildlife area campaign that uh, Pheasants Forever had going on. So everybody in the public lands pavilion pledges, um, I forget what percentage, I think it's 10% of the profits mm-hmm. um, to the, the initiative. And then this year, because it's in Nebraska, they try to do like local, um, raise money for local initiatives and they have the open fields and waters uh, program in Nebraska. So the, the money that we raise at that show will be donated to that project through Pheasants Forever. Oh, very so, cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I bought, uh, that's so that's where I have that like Muley Meat Company shirt from and then the white tail mm-hmm. with November in it. Public land well, thank nice. you for the support. Yeah, man. Yeah. Now they're badass yeah. tees. We'll have to dip back in after. I'm kind of in need. Yeah. I've got bad. I've got a hundred t-shirts, but none that I want to wear. <laughs> right. As my wife would say. Um, I don't know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you get uh, I, I guess when you're starting to look at some of these um public land initiatives, like that one you're working with uh, you know, an NGO in, in that case, uh Pheasants Forever. Um, are you finding I don't know if I want to say partnerships or interest from the state level, from the like the game and fish or the commissions themselves, or is it typically through an NGO? Uh, so, so far it's typically been through an NGO. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think state agencies are very open to that, especially places that have like walk an area or sure. these open fields and waters. North Dakota has the plots program. Yep. Um, and so I think there's, there's definitely opportunity there for, you know, not only people like us, but anybody who wants to like do like a match donation to open yeah. up some chunk of property. So yeah, most of what we've done is through, um, you know, different conservation organizations, just because it's simpler on our end to like, because they're the ones that are researching these like specific projects. And then we can come in and kind of like help like mm-hmm. kick that over the top. You know, we, we've done, we donated five grand to RMEF for their Falls Creek project, Montana, which was, you know, ours was a, drop in the bucket, but it was, uh, helped open up 26,000 acres of public land in Montana, um, donated to the South Dakota chapter BHA that helped pay for a lease that opened up a bunch of public land. So we try to find, and like we've done several, um, donations to, uh, Pheasants Forever, BHA, um, Mule Deer Foundation, you know, it's just mm-hmm. kind of like go across the board and we try to find these specific projects that are going to like actually go to things that we want which is more access to public lands or protecting public lands or increasing habitat on those lands very cool man is there one or a few of those things sam that kind of like stick out in your mind is like some big wins you're like man of all the stuff we've done up until this point that one thing was like really cool you know the 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 falls creek one was really cool the uh um we we bought fourteen hundred dollars worth of sage seedlings for a project in idaho um, which helped everything from the wild turkey to bighorn sheep, which was pretty cool. Um, but I would say our big, like our largest like success donation, whatever has been the Stamp It Forward project, um, mm. which over three years now, I'm just going to add it up real quick while we're sitting here. Cool. Um, we did, let's see here. So in three years, uh, we have, raised $93,000 for the U S and fish U S fish and wildlife duck stamp program. And, uh, by law, 98% of that has to go directly to wetland conservation. So that's $91,140 that, um, we have donated as well as, you know, anybody who like donates to us, hundred percent of the donations go right to that project. So, um, that's probably one we're most proud of, or at least, you know, has been the largest, uh, contributor to like habitat. 
I think what one thing that's interesting on that side, Sam, <clears throat> in in just looking at all the different um, projects there, and and this is one that a lot of NGOs have done well, um, some maybe not so well, but you know when people get into the donation mindset, or you know if it's like an endowed money that comes in, um, or trust, or whatever it might be, you know a lot of times the I guess I say the the entity does a poor job at saying, "Hey, this is the project it went to," right? Because yes. that that tended to be, and and I know they're kind of they exist, but they don't. But when when QDMA Quality Deer Management Association was around, now being National Deer Association, you know, a lot of times those people would get frustrated in that, like there'd be donations, there'd be things like this, and it's like, where does it go? Like, what project am I seeing this go into? And it's often yep. because, you know, hunting is activated at this local level, right? Like I, I would like to see something, if I donate to my state chapter, I'd like to see something happen here in my state or within arm's reach of me, because that's right. where I live. That's where I operate. Um, yep. I think what's interesting about what you guys have done is, you know, where some of these projects specifically have taken place, where a lot of people, you know, would, would put money into something and they're just like, I went to youth programs, question mark. Like they mm -hmm. just, they don't know. <laughs> You know, and it's a, it's a, I think it's been a deterrent for a lot of people to put money uh, in those places because of not having that transparency of where is this actually going and what is it doing? And maybe that's something we should educate people on here is if you are about to make a donation to whether it be a local chapter or a national chapter of some organization, you can call you can call them and ask what projects they're actively working on. And you can have your donation earmarked specifically for that project rather than just going to the overhead, because obviously it costs money for these organizations to like run, you know, it mm -hmm. costs to, 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 to run the organization you have, there has to be some funding for it. So that's where, you know, like I'd say, know that your membership dollars are a lot of that is going towards like making sure the organization exists and they're able to lobby for sportsman's rights hunting um, as well as probably some of those, you know, some of those habitat access mm -hmm. projects, that type of thing. But if you're like, you know what, I'd like to donate a hundred dollars to Delta waterfowl, mm -hmm. um, or I'd like to donate a hundred dollars to the national deer association, whatever it may be, know that you can call and say, Hey, I'm curious what projects you've got going on in Pennsylvania, uh, would love to donate a hundred dollars specifically to that project. Um, and that is a thing you, you can, you can earmark all yep. of your funds to go to that. So just, just any, everyone listening know that that is a possibility. So you, you know, that when you write that check or, you know, put that credit card payment through, like, you know, it's going to what you want it to. I mean, dude, that applies to so many things. I mean, think about tax, just taxes. <laughs> like if the government would tell us <laughs> yeah, what they're spending know, tax man. money on, you know, or, you know, in a hunting sense, apply that to like our hunting licenses. Yeah. For, mm -hmm. And forgive me if I'm just naive and I don't know that it exists, but like, you know, what do they, what do they spend that money on? You so know. you can find out yep. some of that information um, through the Pittman Robertson Act. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of the time, like the money that is raised through license sales, they do match donations for giant projects, and then they'll get you know, say the state puts up a hundred grand for whatever project, they'll get a match donation from the PR fund, and then they can use that towards building a new boat ramp or mm -hmm. you know yeah. installing a gun range or whatever whatever the project might be at the time. So you can find out some of that information. Uh, same with the Land and Water Conservation Fund. You can look up because that's a public fund and mm -hmm. it's it's literally helped every single county in the country um you can look up where exactly those dollars go um but i think it's probably most important for people to understand that most of their license dollars go towards paying biologists and 
uh, managers of the land operational uh, expenses yeah. yeah yeah there are some like pennsylvania i don't know if it was five or six years ago we now have um like a pheasant stamp which we traditionally didn't have um yeah. and so now that pheasant stamp a portion of that actually goes to the cost of raising the pheasants to do a put and take operation mm -hmm. do they do a turkey stamp in pa too uh they do a bonus one now okay yep. i was gonna say so, that's interesting so they do a mandatory pheasant stamp it's not mandatory but, uh, it's okay it, but if okay. you want to if you want to hunt pheasants it is mandatory huh yeah that's interesting yep and that was i think um you know a lot of we're purely a put and take state right and so um i think a lot of the the uh, farms had decreased in their production and or went out of business and so cost of pheasant chicks and and raising pheasants went up and so yep. basically if you want to hunt pheasants you have to have a pheasant stamp and I think it's 20 bucks, yeah. something like that. In, in Mississippi, when I lived there for four or five years, if I wanted to hunt any of the wildlife management areas in the state of Mississippi that were owned uh, and managed by Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, I had to have a $15 WMA permit. Um, sure. And that permit directly went back to conservation efforts, burning, food plots, things like that on those state on lands. On the WMAs, yeah. Yep. And even cool. if you, the cool thing about that, and that was the only state I lived in that did this, is even if you weren't a hunter, if you wanted to hike on those, you still needed that permit, which to See, me was, that. that's exactly what it should be, right? It yeah. shouldn't just be us, the consumption Colorado users. tried to do something similar. They tried to make it uh, that if you wanted to access the uh, I don't know if it was on the state lands or on like, or just access national forests, you had to buy a hunting or fishing license. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it ended up passing, which is really too bad. Cause could you imagine you know, know. a state with a population like Colorado, like, and for a resident, it's very inexpensive yeah, it's to buy cheap. a fishing license. You know, it's like, well, and the amount of money that goes back to that, and there are certain states I, I mentioned, well, Missouri. Dude, if, if they if they would market that differently, I bet they could have some success with it. Just, just call it like recreation. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, and they were they were trying. You know, that was the problem. They tried to you know make you buy a hunting or fishing license instead of just like renaming it and adding it on the. Oh yeah, like, yeah, dude. How many how many people if you, if you explained or marketed it to say like, hey, it's it's not a hunting license; it's a recreational use. Yeah, it's an access license. permit. You right. know, and everybody should have to partake in this. Yeah, They'd and they like, would. Oh, yeah, I'll take, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. The, you see it more and more, mm -hmm. and I don't know. Um, so the the fish and boat side of Pennsylvania, there are now optional license for different species of fish. So you, if you're a muskie fisherman, you can go and catch muskie, and you don't need one, but they do actually have an optional, um, basically like a muskie support permit. I think it costs five or seven bucks. Mm -hmm. And that money will go back directly to efforts for that specific species of nice. fish. We we do have to buy that's a trout cool. permit, trout and salmon permit, obviously, yeah. if we fish, because that's yep. a put and take again. Yeah. But they have like a native brookie one as well, a native brook trout one that it's optional $7. And if you buy it, that money gets redirected into specific conservation efforts for that species. The native brook trout. Yep. That's cool. Which like is cool. That. And, and I think that's uh, more and more states should look at adopting that kind of stuff because it's optional, right? Like, why not? If right. somebody wants to donate well, an extra 21 bucks. Spending yeah. is always going to be a, a positive. That's communication, yep. brother. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've been working on that side to try to get these states to communicate a little better. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. They just like the, and I get it. It's a tough, it's a tough place to kind of step out there and put yourself out there for just likely a bunch of criticism, right? I mean, yeah. that's what oh, it's yeah. going to be. Um, yeah. huh. But it is, it's a necessary step to eventually not having criticism, but actual discussions.
So we'll yeah. see. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all very new to me, frankly. You know, it's I've, I've obviously grew up hunting and stuff, and um, I've always been aware, you know, Sam, of like, like some of your initiatives and stuff, and like, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's big land for, or a big push for, you know, public land access out in the West and stuff, but like, you know, honestly, until fairly recently, I haven't really considered you know, how these things are put together, even, even right here at home. Mm-hmm. I've, I've just always kind of like, been like, well, it's not really affecting me and stuff. And, you know, until you start to realize like, um, you know, y- you're paying money for, for tags or in some cases donating to organizations that may be, you know, pushing for things that aren't, you know, aren't really, uh, like what, what you thought it was going towards or, yep. or, you know, maybe would be better put towards something you can do on your own private land, you know, in the case of some of these Eastern states here. Well, so that's what I was going to ask, um, Sam and kind of, <clears throat> maybe it's, a uh, uh, it's not a loaded question, but it may be more complex in that obviously in a lot of states and maybe not Wyoming and Montana necessarily, but in a lot of states, um, I would say that the ha- the habitat, on privately owned lands probably contributes more to the wildlife than on public lands. Western or Eastern states? Um, just mainly Midwest and East. You okay. could probably you just know. say yes yeah. to that. Okay. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. And, yes. and so what, and, and there are obviously certain programs that apply to private landowners to help enhance wildlife habitat, whether it's CRP, CRAP, you know, wetland reserve program. Um, but a lot of those are on a, fi- on a federal level. Do you think that there should be more state assistance uh, for those private lands? I think, uh, you know, I haven't done the research on like what type of grants you can get. I know that there's a lot of them out there if you're willing to put stuff into like conservation easements. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know how much more there needs to be. I, I would encourage more private landowners to take advantage of those things. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and what that looks like in each state, I don't, I don't really know, but, um, yeah, I think, I mean, especially in states where you have, you know, massive swaths of private land and very little public land, like, of course, you know, like the, the better, the private land stuff is managed, the more spillover there is on, onto public. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people are going to have better opportunities, you know, on the, on the flip side of that is as more land is privatized or as, you know, as more people, kind of look at private land as like a hunting oasis. I know that public lands are going to get more crowded. So there probably needs to be something it's, it's, it's difficult, right? We, Cause we talked about it earlier. Like if you own the private land, like why would you want to let people you know, mm-hmm. just come hunt on your property? But um, there probably, there, there should be, a, I would like to see a program that would incentivize more landowners to do stuff like walk an area mm-hmm. to do stuff like, you know, plots in North Dakota to do stuff like, um, open fields and waters in Nebraska, um, you know, South Dakota around Aberdeen, they did the Aberdeen pheasant coalition where they basically, it was community-based conservation funding where they, a bunch of businesses in Aberdeen put into a pot and then they sweetened the pot for the landowners at a one-time fee to open up their property into walk-in, but they had to keep it in walk-in for five years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was people that were like willing to open up their land anyway, but like, the typical walk-in fee just wasn't quite enough money sure. to like make it worth it for them. Mm. But like being able, you know, like I think between pheasants forever and Aberdeen, the community, I think it was like $175,000 was raised. Um, and in a single year, it opened up 4,000 more acres for people to hunt. So I think I, I would like to see more. It's close. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to see more, you know, projects like that where we're seeing, you know, 
you're not only increasing the habitat, but you're also increasing the amount of access to spread people out on the landscape. Well, well that yeah. is, is that common practice? I mean, I know in the states that we've been Several, in, North, um, South Dakota, Kansas, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. all have walk-in programs. I'm sure there's I more. I think the, um, and, and I know the PLOTS program is really good in, in North Dakota. I think in some of these states, they're established. I just don't either think they're well-funded and what or Sam's saying. They're, they're, not paying enough. they're aggressive enough on that side. And, and I guess my fear in that is, and we've talked about this before, but you know these these especially in the Midwest and East, these public lands are just small political boundaries that obviously the wildlife don't give two shits about, right? They're they're on and off. There it doesn't matter. Um, people from public look at the private as an oasis because it is an invisible boundary, right? And if there are more attractive food, bedding, whatever on private, that's where the deer are going to be or the turkeys are going to be. And where my fear is, is the more people we jam into these small political boundaries, the less the quality of experience is, right? We've talked about this how many times. And at some point, that will dramatically affect hunter numbers uh, Mm -hmm. across the board. Because who wants to go and hunt public land um, where you pull up and there's 12 other vehicles and you walk two miles back in and start calling a turkey on the ridge and the guy pops up 100 yards away and starts calling right at you? Yeah. (laughs) Very possible too. Well, just uh, if we move past it, for, forgive me. But like, how, how do you guys account for the fact that like, just because land isn't public doesn't mean it's not getting hunted by people that don't own the land? Well, it, it very well could be, mm-hmm. but like the the amount of pressure on that land is certainly still less. Yeah, very mitigated, like in comparison. So the animals on private are going to be less pressured. That's just even if it's like open to hunting, most people aren't going to just walk on a place that's not public access unless somehow they know people where they've been hunting it their entire lives or whatever. Well, like so for, you know, here in Pennsylvania, for example, like, you know, public land is receiving, you know, X amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's probably fair to say that like almost every 20 to 40 acre track is also getting hunted by at least one individual. Mm-hmm. But you I gotta bet, remember PA is a different animal. Yeah. We've sure. got a lot more hunters, but I, it still would be a lot less hunters density on that, on that private land. Sure. And, and not even just the density, but just even activity. I mean, yeah. farms out of the way and, and like farm activities out of the way. I mean, you got people who are just out walking their dogs on game lands because it's 65 degrees outside, mm. you know, and, and that's the the pressure that just is never controlled. I, I mean, hell, in the springtime, you, if I'm not turkey hunting, you'll catch me walking on some of the brookie streams right down through the middle of the game lands. Like, am I messing up turkey hunting for the guy tomorrow? Maybe, but I'm also catching native trout. So, like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. So I think that there's there's an unmatched amount of pressure there, and it and it's probably in certain seasons more than others. Pheasants, you know, one even though it's a put and take operation, the fact is there's a limited number of places that they sock these pheasants in the state. And when you pull up, even for Youth Day, I've I've pulled up with the kids, and there's nine cars and seven dogs running in a field that's 20 acres. I'm like, we're not going. <laughs> you know, it's just it's not either somebody's getting sprayed with BBs. You know, it's a, it's a mess. All the birds are flushed out. Like it's just it's crazy because this is the only place you can do this. There are no other, you could go and hunt that area over there. There's no birds. Like they're not there. They dropped them in this 20 acre field in switchgrass. They are not over there mm-hmm. and that's yep. it. So yep. what do you do? You know, and it's going to start. And I feel like we're kind of at that tipping point after COVID and, and uh, I can't remember who do we talk about with this? I remember who we were talking about this like tipping point of, of hunters and numbers and stuff on the increased side. Everybody we talked to pretty yeah. much. But it, it, <laughs> I mean, Brian hey, you know, from the I'm, game commission. I'm, 
I'm curious what you guys think about that. Cause it, in my eyes, you know, obviously we had COVID there's this massive increase mm-hmm. in people in the woods, massive increase in people applying for tags. Um, in your areas, have you seen yes. a big <laughs> swing? Yes. No, 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 no. Have you seen, have you now seen, started to see a big swing the other way? Oh, back? No. Um, yeah. I think it's starting to leach that way. Um, in, in schools are back. School sports are back. Oh yeah. Every, back everything's I mean, back. Yeah. COVID's everything's over. Back. You didn't, you didn't hear. Yeah. COVID's over. It's over. I, I did hear. I did yeah, hear it's gone. COVID is um, you didn't get I, the I think this, Sam, this will be the year. So in 21, because it was still enough, um, yeah. like I look at where we were here and, and in Southern Illinois, I mean, it was, I've never seen so many guys on public land. Um, and it's not that we weren't venturing to like go out. We couldn't even get a parking spot to even try to get deep in right. some of these places. Yep. This will be the year life is slowly coming back to normal. Inflation will deter people from traveling and, and doing things like that. Even putting in for tags, maybe putting in for, if you go into a parking area, all that area, free money you had the past two years is, is now, gone. now everything costs twice as much. It's gone. See how that yeah. works. If you pull into a parking area in October or November and it's loaded with cars, we probably have something to worry about. I would agree. I would say we haven't necessarily seen the results of like less people, but Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, this year is going to be slightly less than Mm -hmm. the the previous two would make sense. Yeah. And I saw it, I saw it happen at least in the, you know, the great plains, Mm -hmm. like greater expanse. I saw it it, early Turkey season was still absolutely nuts. Never see more people out chasing turkeys. And I noticed how much different the turkeys were acting because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But about halfway through the season, it was like this, the valve got shut off mm-hmm. and people were just like, all right, I'm, I'm out of money. Like, yeah. And then, then I was like really worried for deer season that it was going to be just slammed everywhere that I went. Well, and that just wasn't the case. There so, was that period too of, I don't know, May, April, May to probably September where it was like, Oh, things are normal. Like I remember what, wait, when was this in 2021. Okay. Yeah. There, there was a period of time there where like, like COVID wasn't, it was there, but it wasn't a big deal. And, and people it, were still working remotely yep. and getting money. And, and yep. then all of a sudden towards the fall, it obviously Omicron and all this other stuff came up and yeah. it, it re-ramped itself back remember, up. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, you know, are we in one of those laws again to where turkey season? I mean, two years ago, yeah, 2020, they canceled my non-resident turkey tag in Kentucky because That's of right. COVID. Yeah. yeah, And Kansas too, right? Yep. And Kansas. Yeah, they, yep. And Nebraska. Yeah. So, you know, and then, so you had, uh, you know, and I'm not saying, cause I mean, residents could still hunt, but non-residents couldn't. And so, you know, this, this turkey season, the other thing, and it's just because I've gotten into it more with the kids is, um, some of these fisheries have been hammered, mm-hmm. hammered for two years because oh, yeah. everybody, it, you think everybody wants to hunt? No, no, no. Everybody no. wants to go fishing. Cause yeah. it's easy. We get a thing of night crawlers and we're out fishing every, and these, these fisheries have just gotten pummeled Dude, for two and years. It used to be just really hit hard on the weekend. <laughs> exactly. You know? and, and, but now you have, you know, lots of boats every day of the week yeah. and that's just hard. Dude, there's a little stream right down b- b- below my house there that feeds into Monongahela. Mm-hmm. And I think the, uh, the game commission or a, a local sportsman club stocks it. Yeah. And there's at least, uh, five people on like a 200 yard stretch every single day. Yeah. Of, of the entire year. I know. And it's, it's, <laughs> these are the things on a resource level. Um, I guess it, I have a little bit of concern and I've, I've expressed yeah. my concern on this in that 
it, it, the resource is pliable, right? It, it's not like we're going to kill all the deer. We're going to kill all the turkeys. That's not going to happen. But what I do think is we're going to go from this kind of false high of license sales and we're going to just fall off a cliff. And it's going to be because life goes back to normal and people are going to realize they like going to concerts and football games and stuff more than they like hunting. The other part is all those people who were like, oh, I kind of like this hunting are going to realize this sucks because I just run into seven guys every time I'm out. I never even see a deer or a turkey and they're just going to drop two. We're going to go from what is a 20 year high to a 20 year low, I think in a matter of like two years. I don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe it's 22, maybe it's 23, but it, it will for sure happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, can I'm you just, blame them? No. Can, can yeah, you blame exactly. people for going out I'm, and running into a bunch of people? It's like, this sucks. This is stupid. Exactly. I, I'm just hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping that these state agencies also saw that, you know, like coming. I like hope after, so, man. <laughs> all of a sudden their coffer is just jam packed with money. Yep. Uh, I'm hoping that they took some of those funds and, you know, invested it into something where they're just getting a return where they can, you know, keep yep. drawing off of and putting it into habitat night type of stuff. But yeah. Uh, you know, we'll see, you know, hopefully in two or three years, they're not screaming for, you know, well, funding. And my concern is, is that a lot of these in, in Pennsylvania's one, although we had a great conversation with the executive director is that they're a watch three years and then analyze. Well, you watch mm-hmm. three years and it yeah. might be too late. We yeah. may be, we may be in the ditch after three years. I definitely got the feeling that, uh, you know, Brian felt like we were on a strong upward trajectory and that was going to continue. And it, I don't, and it's not to say that we don't want more hunters. It's just, I don't, and I don't know. I don't know how many people you can put in the public land boundaries. They don't know either. He told us straight up. We don't know. There's, we don't, there is no number, but more yeah, is better. But more is better is what he said. <laughs> more is better. And of I'm course like, it is for the, and for I the challenged state, him yeah. on it. I was like, I don't know if it is dude that, you know, and I see his point. He wants to maintain a culture of hunting, which yeah. I do as well. It's opportunist. We want to advocate yeah. for each other as hunters, yep. regardless of your weapon. But, but yeah, at some point, I mean, it's, you can, you can, uh, you know, it's tragedy of the commons. Essentially, you have too many people taking advantage of a, I a, want people a to have a great experience and want to be hunting for the long haul, not one bad experience and out or one good experience, then a bunch of bad experiences and then quit and never look back. Cause those aren't the people that are going to continue the future. Those are flashes in the pan, which is what COVID was. Yeah. Um, well, dude, a real hunter will no offense to anybody that this is, doesn't tell, but a real hunter will embrace the, the, sure. the suck, you know, and it, like, there's going to be hunts. That, I mean, dude, we hunted hard for a week on Shawnee, uh, national forest in Southern Illinois hard. We got all, our ass kicked. all day, every day, got our ass kicked. I didn't see a deer over two and a half years old. And, uh, I saw a lot of, re- gu- I saw a lot of guys over 50. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, that, re- that really sucked, you know? And if that was one of my first hunting experiences, I would have been like, yeah, I don't know if this is for me, you know, mm-hmm. but because I've, I've got the, the backbone for it and I've been, yep. I love it. Um, I, I just kind of embrace those. And I know that when I, you know, when we go to Kansas this year and I kill a giant, mm-hmm. like it's going to be because of that sucky week in Illinois that it's going to, sure. you know, that's, what's going to feel that. So, yep. Yeah. It'll be interesting, man. I mean, my kids even feel it hunting private land. Like they're just, you know, weeks at a time that just deer aren't moving, weather sucks, whatever. And like, I can see them slipping at times on it of like, eh, I don't really know if I want to do this. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm not going to force you to, but like, I can't imagine, you know, trying to get it done on some of these, these public lands where, you know, it's not easy. And it's surely in today's culture, it's not easy to get these kids hooked to, to really want to hunt and you know year in and year out and continue to work harder at it and stuff yeah. um you know especially when they're going on social and their buddies killed a 180 inch deer you know <laughs> like his first <laughs> yeah. time out he's like yeah killed a 180 you know so it's just <laughs> but that's that's and my, part and my of brother it. and i have talked about it 
at length. Uh, there's just, there's so much, there's so many things that are easier to do than go hunting or fishing. Yeah. You know, there's so much entertainment that is easier and more available mm -hmm. than hunting mm -hmm. and fishing. So you'll have, you know, like, it's just, there's going to be generations of people that are like, I don't know, like I could go hunting, but that's sure. really tough. You know, yeah. I can play Wordle or I can do whatever and like get still that yeah. dopamine hit. Damn, so. I still don't get this Wordle shit. I see these people <laughs> posting this thing. I'm like, what the hell is that thing? First time hearing it. What, what's this? You know, I heard oh, it's it just a, Wordle. It's Sounds like, like a Pokemon. A, it's like a word scramble game, like app that, that blew oh. up. Oh. Yeah. Cool. People, people at the gym. <laughs> you ever, have you ever shot a booner? <laughs> people at the gym don't play that game. No, I've actually. I have, I've, I've I have never, never shot it. a booner, so I don't know that feeling. I shot my first one last year, so I can nice. I can barely say that. Yeah, you're and in. it's barely scraping by. Too. You're in. It was a it was a green score, so yeah, it's counted. So. We don't use nets. That's well, right. Well, listen, Sam, we appreciate you uh, coming on Hunter Podcast, man. Really good discussion. Um, appreciate your efforts too um, to to really be out there and and you know you do have a platform, man, and and people listen and pay attention, and so well, you know. And dude, you've got friends here in Pennsylvania now, so like yeah. if, if there's something we can do to to be a part of this, absolutely, uh, please let us know. You know, hundred percent, we'd love to uh, we'd love to do that. Yeah, uh, I wanted to plug one thing hey, while, man. I'm, while I'm on here. Uh, well, maybe two things. So <laughs> public land tees, if anybody wants to help. We're going to go on and buy some when we're done with this. And, yeah. and then uh, I actually just got done recording an eight episode podcast with Ben O'Brien called Roost. Oh, very and cool. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's behind a paywall. So like you have to, you have to subscribe to get to the podcast, but we like, if anybody who's like either just starting out turkey hunt or getting into turkey hunting, we kind of did like a, an all encompassing turkey talk. So everything from the state of the union surrounding mm -hmm. wild turkey to turkey biology to calling to cooking to you know hunting strategies uh from from a to z we we covered it all so if anybody's looking for a good turkey podcast it's coming out here and i think uh next week it launches where so. where will they be able to get that like apple podcast same same places so, or specific so it'll be on supercast uh, okay you know, woodside.supercast.com okay i believe it's the website yeah who so. is ben where do we know ben from so Ben O'Brien started the Hunting Collective podcast. Uh, and then, mm -hmm. That's and then right. Went to work for Meat Eater for a few years, and yep. now he is um, struck off on his own. He's doing. He's the community marketing manager for Duck Camp Co. And uh, okay. and then he's doing his Woodside podcast. Yep. He's having. Yeah, we're yep. familiar with so, Duck Camp. Yep. Maybe yeah, we've crossed ben, Ben's path at some point. We did. Um, I think prior to him being at Meat Eater, we we sure. crossed his when path. When he was at Yeti. Yep, at Yeti. Yep. Cool. Yep. Cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, definitely yeah. check that podcast out. I, We'll give it a look. We're gonna Absolutely. shoot some turkeys in the face this year. That's yep. what I like to hear. We've got a uh, a love hate. I gotta stop saying the same thing on every podcast, but we have new guests. So I gotta tell you, my my dad's got got involved with this. Uh, it's an organization called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Yeah, and uh, we've got a farm in Eastern Central Ohio with a bunch of turkeys, and like frankly, I just don't care about <laughs> turkeys. Sure, if I'm being honest, but yeah. I kind of do. But I just you know they're fun, but you don't. Like, I've decided yeah. to commit myself to you know, to the white-tailed deer. Um, but anyway, So nice of you. <laughs> well, it's creating opportunities for other people. I'm just trying to be generous. So, and so through that organization, my dad's hosting, uh, I think, one, one of the first, uh, like, youth turkey hunts. And so we're going to have, like, 12 kids come out uh, for free. Obviously, they're going to bring, like, a, a mentor. And so I'll, I'll get to be one of the guides on on that. So that that's the first time I've been excited about turkey hunting in a, in a little while here. So. I fun. love it. I love it. Really good. Well, cool, Sam. Well, we yeah. appreciate it, man. Um, anywhere else we can still follow your stuff, Instagram. Are you? Do you got YouTube cranking too? 
Yeah, we have a YouTube channel. It's called Soholt Brothers. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's just Josh and I doing, uh, you know, everything from gear to wild game processing stuff and and beyond. Very cool, man. Well, yep. dude, we appreciate it. Appreciate your efforts, and uh, we'll have to wrangle you back in here as we get closer to the season and stuff, and and check in Definitely. and see what the plans look like going into the fall. And if we're swinging that through, good. it should be a good one. If we're swinging through North Dakota, maybe we'll. There you go. We'll pop in for yeah, a drink. Swing, I'll buy you a beer. There you go. I need a place to stay in Fargo. I've got a place. All right. That now we're good, talking. Man. After 20 hours of driving, that sounds right. pretty darn good. I'll take two. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. We'll see you, man. Thanks. All man. right. See ya. That's awesome. Uh, really cool to hear just Sam's involvement and knowledge of all that stuff. He's got a cool gig, man. Um, it's basically just be passionate well, about what you what you love to do and just keep doing it and keep talking I hope about I it. I wasn't out of line and just kind of asking him, like, dude, what what do you do? Like, do you spend most of your time creating content? Like, He's a multiple it... revenue stream guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, he does. I Entrepreneur, think, for I think sure. The, the, the majority of his revenue probably comes through creating content for brands. Mm-hmm. I would think so. Maybe not in an influencer side as much as it is. Sam takes great photos. He's I supplemented by selling merch, which a lot yeah, of that I'm sure Public Lantis is doing great. They make some awesome. They do. It's some cool stuff. Yeah, so I'm sure that's doing good. And, you know, doing things with, like Ben O'Brien in this podcast, I'm sure he's making some cash on that. But dude's just living life, man. Just doing his thing. It's a cool conversation. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some stuff happening out west that you know maybe you and I are not as privy to. And yeah, but I think it's applicable to some of the stuff out east, like some of this landlocked public land in in you know Illinois and Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Like it's like how there's no easement, so how do we get to it? Oh, you can't. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, what's the purpose of it? Might as well sell it and go buy something that we can access. Yeah. Well, I mean, if nothing else, you know, even if you're not wanting to get involved necessarily, like I think Sam is probably a good one to look to to say, like, what what are the issues? What's happening mm-hmm. now? Um, he's kind of made it his business to to keep track of those things and bring them to the light and advocate on behalf of them. So, yeah, and obviously, he's, he's a good one to follow. Well, and buy some badass T-shirts from him, and money's going to a good cause anyway. That's right. So that's a that's an easy justification on that side. We'll hit that up here pretty soon. Maybe we'll give some away. On the I've podcast. got a couple. I need to get a few more. Yeah, let's do that. We'll buy we'll buy some t-shirts and give them away. So if you want a public land tea, why don't you lay a comment down? Cool. You probably stopped listening by this time, anyways. You're like, <laughs> and we're done. I don't need to talk about these guys. Anyways, uh, so if you're listening to this, it is March fifteenth, at least thereafter. Um. Again, go back and watch the I Bought a Farm, which by that time we may have number two about ready to drop. Um, and yeah, we're going to just keep cranking. We got several big podcasts here on the future coming up. Yeah, dude. It's, it's uh, you know, this time of year is just kind of like, we're great. ready to go shed hunting. I'm, uh, I was, dude, I told you this morning, I was like, I can't doesn't go. it seem so far removed that like we actually get to go out and go hunting again at some point? It does seem far out. I, I've been, I've been laying out my plan of like planning and, and deer grow business is like picking up now. So like Good. emails are just freaking like flying in of like getting stuff, but it's gotten me to the point where I'm like, Oh shit. Like I need to do this. I think I'm going to chainsaw. If it's not windy, I'm going to chainsaw on Saturday, um, to get that property, the behind the house ready to get trees in, in April. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I'll pass on Ohio farm this weekend. Next weekend I'm going to, Ohio, uh, Kentucky and all of those deer, I haven't seen a sh- I haven't seen an antlered buck in a week and a half down there, and there I've go. seen shed bucks, so I should be able to find a shed down there. One would hope. <laughs> we'll see. Harder than it's the thing about shed hunting, man, is just like the you know, unlike 
just bow hunting, generally speaking, is the more the more the merrier. You get get eyes mm. and you know get feet out there. Man, all these freaking Iowa them. and Kansas Illinois guys are just making me jealous. Like you see they're those just giant. They're Iowa just shots. driving down. They're like, oh look at this. Here's a giant seventy incher, and I'm like, what the fuck? We'll get our time. We're gonna we're gonna try to still go to Kansas. I think. Yeah, I'm trying. Schedule's just freaking nuts right now. Cool. We'll so, get it. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, Colty told me, what is it, 65? Episode 65, 100 Podcast with Sam Soholt, and we will catch you next week. Later. Take me home.